Mike and Rob and Ron that I was the preferred one and they went with them first because they were setting up for the glory release in these moments. So you can just, when you hear from them, say that was really true. They were John the Baptist. They were John the Baptist. Well, I still want to be John the Baptist. I'd rather Jesus be Jesus. Uh, thank you for Catherine, who was my communication person. She was amazing. I mean, I didn't have any questions about anything, except driving my car here. She did everything, which was fantastic. To the worship team, this has been refreshing to my soul. It's amazing how many times you sang things and led us in places that was a confirmation that I was listening well to God, what he wanted. And so it's fun to team in that way. And to all of you for entering in. Uh, you have something very unique here. You really do, and you need to treasure it. Sometimes when you're in the midst of something really good, you lose sight of the blessing of it. And you've treated me like one of your own, even though you keep calling me Dr. Davis, but that's okay. My grandmother would be happy that you're calling me Dr. Davis. If you called me the Reverend Dr. Charles Andrew Davis III, then my grandmother would be really happy, but that's a whole different story. In 1990, uh, Ingrid and I were preparing with our three kids, uh, three-year-old twins and a one-year-old, to go to France to learn French, and then we would lose, learn, use French to learn Bambada, to minister to the Malian people. At that time, I was at the beginning of my running career. I had always used running just to get ready for basketball. But I was coming to the age that I didn't have as much basketball time in me, and so I was using it more as a training tool. And while we were preparing, we went to Toronto to a thing called the Toronto Institute of Linguistics, where we were learning how to learn a language. It was called the barefoot method, and there was a way to learn a language, and they were teaching us all kinds of interesting things. And while I was there, I discovered that there were four other guys who were training as runners as well. And we had three little kids, and so you, I've watched you families this week. Oh, some of us would like to stay on retreat. Some of you are going, I got to get home to where I can send my kids back to school and all those things. But we were juggling, and my wife would exercise in the afternoon, and I would go running during lunchtime. We had a half an hour, so we had to be very precise in that, and we all wanted to run five miles, so we were doing six-minute miles for 30 minutes. And it was perfect because Toronto has no humidity. It was perfect weather in June, and each of us had a kick at a different time. So one person would carry the first mile, and the second person would carry the next, and you would just get in each other's rhythm, and at the end of 30 minutes, you'd be like, wow, we just knocked off five miles. It took me five hours to quit sweating, but that's a whole different story uh, in the process. So we came back to New Jersey for our final week before we said goodbye to our church, and there was a race in Cranford called the uh, July 4th um, Firecracker Four Miler. And I thought, four miles? I've been doing five miles at a six-minute pace. This is going to be really easy. Um, so I set my goal to do it at 24 minutes. That's four miles at six minutes each. And so I was really excited. It was actually my first road race. Uh, but that day, it was 95 degrees and 95% humidity. And I was alone. So my first uh, uh, mile was five minutes and 22 seconds. I was hauling. I mean, I don't know who the greatest sprinters are now. I'm an old man, but 
I just want to say to some of those other sprinters, I was 30 years old and cranking it out. My second mile was five minutes and 42 seconds. So I'm thinking, this is great. I've got my 24 minutes easily. My third mile, I wrote it down so I wouldn't lie to you, because people keep asking me, are your stories true? They're all true. <laughs> uh, third mile was six minutes and 22 seconds. Still okay, if I can just maintain it. But my last mile was seven minutes and four seconds, and so I didn't make it in 24 minutes. I remember crossing that line. It felt to me, because I had lost all my oxygen, that my legs were like this coming across the line. But they actually have a picture of me. I come across the line like this. <laughs> They immediately put blankets on me, even though it's 95 degrees. They knew something was wrong with this guy. He had completely lost it. So what happened to me? I ran out of energy. And why did I run out of energy? First of all, I didn't have my community to keep me at the right pace. And I used up my oxygen, the source that was there. We've had a great time together, and we're going back into a race, but I want to remind you, the race isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. And we're going to need fueling and community to carry us into this next place. Remember when Peter had his transfiguration experience, he said to Jesus, let's build three little temples here so that we can stay on the mountain. And there's a part of us that wants to stay in the spiritual high, but the reality is fruitfulness only happens back when you get in the valley. I heard a sermon this week, and the, the preacher used that language. It was really moving to me. He said, you don't have fruit at the top of the mountain. And those of you who've lived in international places where there's mountains, you know they're barren up there. Fruit happens in the valley. And so we need to go back into the valley, but we need to know what will sustain us. So I want to finish in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. Paul gives us a clue, very strong clue, of what we need to do entering back into the world. I'm going to give our brother a day off. I'm not going to have him come read scripture. I'm not going to have you stand either because I'm going to just do a little exposition as we go through it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. And I'm going to pray for us before we read this word. Lord, this is no natural text. This has been breathed by your spirit. We feel privileged that we get to read it in this language and for many of us, multiple languages. We get to see angles on it that are just amazing because your spirit speaks all languages. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts to what you're saying today. And as only you can do, you will take this word spoken by one man and that you will translate it to dozens of hearts so that it would land exactly where it needs to land and that we would be filled by your presence through this word. In Jesus' name, amen. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. I encourage you to pay attention when you're reading scripture. There's no lost phrases. I've been reading the Bible now for 50 years, and I read things all the time. I'm thinking, wow, I missed that before. Paul's already prayed for them one time. He's calling them back to the fact that he's praying for them. Remember, we're still in the indicative section of the letter. He's still saying things about them that are true before he's going to call us to things that we need to do in our life. 
And he says, I kneel before the Father. Now, in Jewish culture, it wasn't the most common thing for men to kneel in prayer. That's something I grew up doing in church. I was really blessed. I was one of those churches where intergenerational, very similar to what you're doing. We didn't break the kids out for things. I knelt in the pews and folding chairs in the basement of the church and prayed with the adults. I learned how to pray by being around praying adults. And kneeling was just a part of our tradition. But Jewish men would normally pray like this with their eyes to heaven and their hands open. So when Paul says he kneels before the Father, there's a sense of intensity for the body of Christ at this moment. He's saying, I have some things that I really want you to get. I've been trying to tell you for three chapters, but I really want you to get this now. From whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The professor and me would like to take my preaching hat off for a moment and spend about 15 minutes in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But what Paul's talking about here is this declaration and promise of Scripture that when you're in relationship with Jesus, there is the indwelling Holy Spirit in you that will be all of the energy that you need. He will be the oxygen to help you finish your Cranford four-miler, firecracker four-miler, if you'll look to him. Paul says it this way when he writes to the church in Colossae, which is very similar to what he writes to the church in Ephesus, is to this end I labor, it's work for Paul, struggling, still work for Paul, with all of his energy which so powerfully works in me. There's a sustenance that comes from God that will carry you to the next space. And you simply need to tap into it, this power of the Spirit. But then he says something that's very interesting. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and width, uh, breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Whew. God wants to fill you with his fullness to know what? How much he loves you. This is Paul reflecting back on chapter 1, your identity. He's saying, I'm asking that the Spirit would fill you up so that tomorrow, well, you don't even need to wait till tomorrow. Later today, when you're separated from this loving group and you're out there back in the world and the enemy comes in and says, oh, so you think you're a son. Why did you act that way to that person that served you coffee at Starbucks just now? Right? Because the accuser of your soul, he's the accuser of brethren, keeps coming back to say, don't believe that sonship and daughtership stuff. Don't believe that prince and princess stuff. Don't you see your own life? It's not true of you. And Paul says, I pray that the Spirit would so fill you that the things of chapter 1, who you are in Christ, will just keep coming back to you. We need that over and over because the truth of the matter is, I have a foot in Adam and I have a foot in Christ and they're fighting all the time. And I find myself sliding back in and Paul says, I pray that you will know this. Then he breaks into this doxology. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to that power which is at work within us. 
He's referring back to the Holy Spirit, but now he's reflecting on all that God is able to do. It's a reflection on chapter 2. Remember, God has prepared works for you to enter into. And that the Spirit would empower you to know what they are and to be able to walk in them. Um, I've had a couple people say to me, seriously, did those things really happen to you? Guys, it's happening all the time. I talked to Ingrid on the phone last night. This is hilarious. She said, I got to tell you this story. So we walk six to eight miles every day. We find it's really good because it focuses our prayer. We try to listen to some worship. Uh, we're at a stage in life where we don't have responsibility for kids, so we get up to two hours to do that kind of thing and to be engaged. For those of you who have kids, don't make this your goal right now. <laughs> Someday you will be free again. I'm here to tell you this too will pass, and you will get your life back. But uh, we like to go out in different courses, and we have one that goes out along the water in Fairfield, which is beautiful, which brings our soul alive. But most importantly, at the six-mile mark, there's a thing called the Tasty Yolk. They make the best bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich in the country. I actually just got goosebumps. I have more goosebumps there than when the worship team was leading us. That tells you something about where my heart is at. But we'll walk there, and if we have courage, we'll do the last two miles home. Sometimes we call an Uber <laughs> to get us home. After you've had that glorious experience with the Lord, you don't want to burn all your energy right away. So she went there yesterday, and she said, you're not going to believe what happened, because this has happened to us three or four times now. The Uber driver was late getting there. And she got there, and it was an African-American woman, and she immediately launched into how terrible her day was yesterday. She got sideswiped. Her mirror was taken off. She was at the auto zone trying to get a mirror to replace it, and she's going on and on. And Ingrid's just listening. And we've come to realize that when people start displaying their brokenness to us, God's setting something up. So we just keep going, uh-huh, uh-huh. And finally, the woman goes, I haven't been sleeping well. Do you know something? What's the word she used? She goes, um, it's, um, I'm not going to think of it, but it's when a presence comes on you and you feel paralyzed. Well, we know that. That's called a demon. She goes, I, oh, she called it um, paralyzed sleep. And uh, she started talking about all this thing that was happening, and Ingrid finally said to her, well, you're not going to believe this, but I'm actually a woman of faith. And we deal with demons all the time. And so an evil spirit will come to you and land on you in sleep. A lot of women get it, and they'll try to say the name of Jesus, and they feel like their mouth is even gagged. Um, and Ingrid said, we've come to learn that this is often an incubus spirit, which is a, a sexual spirit, and it's coming to try to um, molest you. And the woman is like, I tried to say the name of Jesus, and it wouldn't come out. By the end of that Uber ride, which is only two miles long, Ingrid is doing a mini deliverance session on her in the car, praying with her. The woman jumps out, opens the door, gives her a big hug, and blesses her. God has appointments for you in Uber driver cars. Seriously, folks, this stuff happens all the time. And Paul is praying that they would be empowered to see that God is able to do immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine. You don't have to leave here and go out and create something. 
It's in the indicative that God has already created it for you. Just have eyes to see and allow him to operate in you. But there does come a moment where we need to move to the imperative. So God has said your identity is settled in Christ. He's prepared works for you. He's put his spirit in you that will give you all the power that you need. And in chapter 4, Paul begins laying out imperatives. But there's one special imperative that's related to this passage that we need to hear. And you know it well. Chapter 5 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, Keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. What's interesting is Paul uses nautical language here. The word for being filled is what you would say of a sail when it was filled with wind to push a ship along. It's a beautiful image. Considering Paul's missionary journeys, which would have taken him from city to city by ship, he would have seen this over and over. What Paul is basically saying is, to be someone who cooperates with God, your only responsibility is to hoist the sail so that the wind of God would come in and move the ship of your life and your ministry to where it needs to go. Oh, if I had a sail at the end of the Cranford four mile, or Firecracker four-miler, it would have carried me through. What a perfect image because we know that the word for spirit in the Hebrew is ruah, the breath of God, the wind. Paul is saying, don't try to row your boat into the things that God has for you. Simply hoist the sail. And God will move you where you need to go. Now, there's something interesting in this. Jesus, in speaking to Nicodemus, said these words. The Spirit goes where it will, and he uses the image of wind. That means we don't need to be worried when there aren't a lot of things happening because it's up to the wind, the spirit. As long as our, our sail is hoisted into the air, it's up to God to push us into those things. I don't be, need to be nervous on Monday and say, oh God, when is something going to come? I just need to hoist the sail and allow him to energize me and to put his life into me and to move me to where I need to go. Are there any sailors in the room? Wow, you guys are afraid of water. Uh, not many people have the privilege of growing up and sailing. I don't. I'm fascinated with boats and water. But you've heard the phrase, I'm in the doldrums. Have you heard that phrase? Have, younger generation, have you heard this phrase? It's an old phrase. To be in the doldrums is to be in a slump and feel like nothing is happening. We used to say it all the time, uh, I'm really in the doldrums. Well, I learned that's actually a nautical term for when there isn't wind to fill, fill the sails. There's actually a place on the equator where most sailors know that when your boat gets to that spot, it may turn for a couple days because the wind quits blowing there. And you have to wait for the wind to come. I thought, what a perfect picture of our life is. There are times we're in the spiritual doldrums, right? You're saying, God, I haven't seen you in a while. The wrong people are picking me up in my Ubers. They're not seeking you. They're just angry and mad and upset all the time. 
I need somebody to come along who will completely give me a sense that you're operating. You don't need to produce the fruit. You just need to hoist the sail. So how do you hoist the sail? I have two words for you this morning, and then we're done. The first one is surrender. If you're going to hoist the sail of the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to abandon yourself to the risky place that you may look foolish. Remember when the church had the Holy Spirit come upon them for the first time? What were they accused of? Being drunk at 10 in the morning. And if your desire living in suburbia America is always to look put together and being respectable, there's going to be a hole in your sail. I think one of the worst things the American church has done is made Christianity respectable. The Bible doesn't make sense to us because for the early believers, they were totally disrespectable, irrespectable, unrespectable. I'm not sure the right word. There's an English professor, help me. But we had power for so long that we could control the structures where we're at, so we formalized the faith, and we set up structures using business things for churches, and we could amass a group of people and get enough money to make it look like everything was going good, but we quit being the church. You're going to have to surrender to your sense of pride and being seen as somebody who is cool and in the structures. When Ingrid and I heard the Lord say, get un unencumbered a couple years ago, he gave us a prayer from Pascal, Blaise Pascal from the 1600s. It so moved us that we memorized it and we pray it every day. It goes like this. Lord, let me not henceforth desire life or health except to spend them for you, with you, and in you. You alone know what is good for us. Do therefore what seems best to you. Give to us or take from us. Conform our wills to yours. And grant with humble and perfect submission and with holy confidence we may receive the orders of your divine providence and may equally accept all that we receive from you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Guys, it's so liberating to be surrendered. You don't have to produce anything. You just get up in the morning and you say, Lord, here's my sail. Fill it. And then once you're surrendered, get saturated. You see, chapters 1 through 3 in the indicative are about our union with Christ. We live in Christ because we died with Christ, and we were buried with Christ, and we were raised with Christ, and we were seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. The Spirit of Christ dwells in us. That is our union. Nothing can take that away. Your best experience doesn't add to it, and your worst experience doesn't take away from it. That's settled. But it's our communion with God which is what we maintain. And our communion doesn't 
determine the quality of God's love for us or our response, but what our communion does is it gives us confidence in our union so that we then walk into the things that God has for us. There's only one way to keep the communion. Word, prayer, community. And in the community, you'll know your places of service and output, and that will be the peace that will keep you together. The Cranford four-miler, firecracker four-miler would have been so different if I had my four other buddies with me. I would have gone at a better pace. I wouldn't have run out of energy. I would have been full of life. Do whatever you can to stay connected. Paul warns them twice in chapters 4 and 5 about things not to do with the Spirit. First, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And the other one, he says, make sure you guard the unity of the Spirit. Now, I know you're busy people. I know where you live. I know what the structure of your lives are. You might not be able to hang out together all the time, but we do have phones. There are Google Rooms. There's FaceTime. There's texting. In between the times where you get to touch like this, make sure that you're connecting with one another. I don't know if I said it already, but you have something really special here. Live into it and watch what God does. I'm going to invite the praise team forward now. And I'm going to invite the pastoral team forward. We're going to do something a little different than we had talked about. Last night as I saw the ministry of the community happening here, I thought, you guys are way advanced in what God is doing. And so the pastoral team up here, a lot of times in situations like this, we set up lines and people pray for individuals. Some get hit with the Holy Spirit and get slain in the Spirit. I call it carpet time. Uh, you need some rest. Uh, some people get hit with tongues. Other people have a sense of joy that overcomes with them. But the Holy Spirit, because he's spirit, will manifest something to us. I don't want it to be an individual thing today because I think something special is happening in the community. I want them to bless you with a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit as a community because he's doing something in you. So pastors, I'm going to invite you to come in the middle. I haven't warned them about this, but I really trust the Holy Spirit that he will speak through them. I'm going to hand the microphone to them, and I want them, in the same way that Jesus breathed on his disciples, for them to speak a word of fresh filling into us. And I invite you to agree with them, to spiritually put your sails out and allow the Spirit to operate through you. And after they've spoken their word over you, the worship team can lead us in praise as we go back into the valley to experience the fruitfulness that God has for us. Pastors.